Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Engley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Ryan. Good to talk to you today. Good to talk to you as well. And I just want to uh, I want to put this out there. I want to, I want to break I want to break the the fourth wall and say we're doing this on a Friday because uh, your Bengals are playing a very important game tomorrow. And I want to put this on tape. I think this is going to come out after the game. Um, because that's the, the way the release is. I want to put this on, on tape that you're winning. You're well, that's points, nice of you to winning. say, but I'm going to be too... I think the reason we're recording it before is because you thought I would be too depressed after the game. <laughs> so I wanted a hedge. It's a hedge. <laughs> it's a hedge. I'm excited. Yeah. I think you're going to win. Okay. I think you're going to win. Right. I think All you're right. going to win. Okay. But this is a hedge. All right. So, or um, I, might, it, I might actually commit suicide after the game, <laughs> and so then we wouldn't be able to record. So there would be that. Well... At the very least, if you did, then we would be able to say that, you know what we got, Todd? We got spirit, because that's what we're talking about. That's right. That is what we're talking about. (laughs) We are returning to our uh, walkthrough, talkthrough, conversation through of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. And uh, I want to put this here because, you know, we've done this uh, in order, but with uh, temporal gaps between the, you know, times that we uh, do return to the text. The previous one was on reason, which... I mentioned, I'm just going to put in this here to mention because it will be uh, very important later when we talk about faith. Uh, and Hegel talks about faith uh, coming after reason. This is important. So I wanted to just uh, put that out. Uh, but yeah, we are, uh, we're in the home stretch. That's right. In the, uh, That's right. In the phenomenology of spirit. And as we have uh, mentioned before, what happens in, you know, the, the text is, apart from the preface, which is of course written after, uh, Hegel wrote the rest of it, but like right. as you go along, you get closer to truth or what he will, you know, uh, right. or absolute knowing. And a couple of real important things here is that you may think, one may think, if you just explain that's the structure of the book. What's the structure of Hegel's phenomenology of spirit? Oh, as you read along, you get closer, you get closer to truth at the end. Ah, okay. So we get closer to some pure insight, perhaps. That is incorrect. Okay, right. P- purity, big, big, big thing here. Um, truth for he- Hegel, uh, truth is dirty, right? And and, and you got to get your hands a little dirty to grasp it. And we're gonna try to play that out in this uh, in this chapter, which I, I think is uh, it contains some of the best insights and and really uh, like just this idea. It would be so easy to say that like you know because it is true Hegel is filing down a logic and an approach to, to knowledge itself and like the emergence of, of thought. And it would be really, really easy to say that we, we get to something like more pure or get closer to purity as we get to the end of the book. But that is absolutely against the project here. Right. I, it's a great point. And I think, I think any other, not any other, but almost other projects of knowledge move in that direction, right? Like we're starting with a, a rough idea, and we're moving to a purer idea. And, sure. yeah. and his trajectory is exactly the opposite. And it's interesting because I think it also is, that's part of what he's doing when he redefines abstract and concrete. Like he thinks, like mm-hmm. we usually think of the concrete as like the ordinary facts of the situation, the, the you know, the table that I'm sitting at is the concrete. But his, and that the abstract is some kind of idea that's governing everything. His point mm-hmm. is exactly the opposite. That 
that the, the most abstract thing is the most immediate thing and the mm. most concrete thing is the most thing that's most mediated by all of the significations and connections that inform it. And so he's reversing that. He's reversing this relationship to purity. And I think it becomes clearest. I, I'm, I'm really glad that you said this because I think it becomes mm. clearest in the spirit section that here he's really going from the, the most pure idea of spirit to spirit that has its hands dirty. It's interesting that the sections that follow, religion and absolute knowing, do in a certain sense the same thing. It's What I find fascinating is that Robert Brandom, who wrote a very famous commentary just a few years ago on the phenomenology mm-hmm. called a spirit of trust, it's like, I would call it the analytic philosophy commentary on the book. Uh, right. He he basically stops with spirit, like he he just like he's like oh, and then there's this section on religion and absolute knowing, but they don't add anything. That's basically what he says at the mm. end. So interesting. It's, 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 so that's the so that that's that uh, to, to to be to be Hegelian in our way about it. That concretizes the analytical take. I think that's right. I think that's right. Mm. That that that, mm-hmm. that 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 for him, religion can't contribute anything because it's just another repetition of what Hegel's already doing in spirit. Same thing with absolute knowing. Now that is not our position at all. And I, Mm -hmm. because we're going to go ahead and talk about those two things later. (laughs) Right. right, But, but there is a, what he does get, what is right about that, although I don't think Brandon sees this, is that the trajectory of all these is the same. That is to see the way in which what seems pure is actually stained. And I, I like that to yes. think of that word yes. stain in terms of what. So in a way, the spirit section is reconciling oneself to the stain within spirit or, and just to, to, we'll just throw the word out there. So it's the phenomenology des Geistes. So, so spirit is, the word in German is Geist. And we've talked about this before, that it, it means both mind individual mind mm-hmm. and collective spirit. Here in this section, it's certainly signifying spirit in the collective sense. And so that's the move from reason to spirit is the move from individual mind to collective spirit. Yeah, and that's and that's so crucial. Um and 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 that's the 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 twist, right? Is it's not and I think that this does make as it continues to make um, Hegel uh, distinct, I mean, this is why we talk about him, or, and and this this notion that like the the collective is, uh, I mean, you know, Freud has this in group psychology uh, a little bit w- without reference to Hegel, but like the collective being in the individual, and the individual be, like obviously being a, a part of the collective that like you have the the, the universality in the the singular. Right. And then right. the singular being reflective of the universal, like it's, 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 um, as we've said many times, it's not an, an adding up to, to something wider. Right. It's how do we get to the, oh, I don't know. Let's use the word substance. That is itself. Um, like, I think this is the tricky part. It's not just actually you, you tell me, tell me if you, if you, if you think this is right. Yeah. It's not just, um, it's not just reflective of something wider of a, of a, of a social, of a collective, but is itself collective substance. Does that's that right. Make sense? No, that's exactly right. Ryan, that, yeah. that, and that's why in a certain way, 
the structure of the book is deceptive because it makes it seem like we're starting with immediate sense certainty, right? Like that's the first section mm-hmm. of the book, immediate consciousness. But in fact, consciousness already depends upon absolute knowing, upon mm-hmm. spirit, in order to even be conscious of ability to have sense certainty requires this whole structure of spirit. So the ability of the individual to reason depends upon the larger structure of spirit to inform it Mm -hmm. as the collective. So, I mean, this is why Hegel is such an anti-liberal thinker, right? Like the the liberal is committed to the idea that first there are individuals and Mm -hmm. then there's a collective. Hegel's idea is, no, first there is a collective and then there are individuals, which is why he wasn't an anti He was actually a pro-vaxxer, a pro-vaccine <laughs> pass thinker prior to, I mean, prior to most vaccines oh, he, being developed. It's, a, it's amazing. You told me this. Can you, can you lay that out? Because you told me this. I, I forget. And I couldn't, I could barely believe it. Like, I thought, I thought it was incredible. Right. No, it's in philosophy of right. He's like, the state has the absolute requirement to require or to demand that that subjects be, and he goes through a lot of this to pay taxes, become vaccinated. So it's, it's like, it's incredible, really. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, there were primitive vaccines at the time, but, but obviously nothing like the kind of vaccine regimen we have now, and of course not a COVID vaccine. So, I mean, his, his, his stance is unequivocal because he thinks – and and this the position of the anti-vaxxers, of course, it's my body. I can the state can't right. tell me what to do. But his point is, no, your very body is first constituted by the collective. So you don't get to say, you don't get this like ultimate say over even your own body unless it's given to you by the collective first. And I think that mm. just to me is a really, you know, it's 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 a way of seeing even more than Marx, I think, right? The way in which the collective constitutes the individual subject. And I think, you know, that's why people like Karl Popper are so afraid of Hegel, right? Because Mm. the liberal thing, this is why he hates the idea of the social contract and Rousseau and Hobbes for this reason, but that the notion that we come together as individuals and form a social, he's just like, that's crazy. No, it's Mm. the, first it's the state, or the collective that allow that gives birth to us as individuals, so that we can then whatever embrace it or whatever we do, right? Like, like there. Would, would you would you say this is? I, I think this is, I think it's really interesting. Like, one of the um, one of the meme versions of American politics is that uh, both parties are the same, and I think, which is in a lot of ways like just like very untrue, and that's not a very. Um, uh, uh, to, to use a word we'll come on to later, not a very enlightened uh, view of uh, <laughs> politics, even in this country, yeah. but where they are absolutely aligned is in this idea that it's individual first. Absolutely. Like, like absolutely. the dominant, like, like that is absolutely at the root of the, you know, your, your nominally center left mainstream Democrats. And it's completely, uh, that's the whole point of the, of your, of your, the conservative party mainstream right. alt-right like that, like the, everyone agrees on that. Everyone like agrees. That, that is the, right. The, that's the, the consensus. The precept. Yes. It's not yes. even, no one even has to argue that. Right. Like the, it's, it, that's, the, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, what's the, um, like, I, I, like, I don't what know. What I way just of putting said it is, yeah, would seem yeah. like a heresy to both, to, to like 99% of the people in the West. 
right? Like, yeah. and maybe all around the planet, right? right? Like, I think that that notion that first we're individuals and then we mm-hmm. come into the society is just so ingrained. And it's a capitalist, of course, idea. Right, right. Uh, but yeah. it's just so ingrained, I think, that nobody dissents from it, except Hegel. <laughs> And it, uh, yeah, then next up, Hegel. Yeah, well, it, it's, you can see, like, I think that, um, I don't know, like, I, w- I would maybe put this in, like, uh, there, there are probably other ways of, of, of doing this. I, I might be, like, reinventing the wheel with this phrase, but, like, if you look at, like, politics of assumption, like, what, what is just has assumed value, no one has to do any kind of argumentation for it. What you see is that, like, it is, like, it's, especially in this country, it is, it's individual first. Right. And, right. and individual first, uh, like, you know, when you see uh, in this country local news advertise, what do they tell you? This we're bringing the stories that impact you, right? right like that's like right, that. The, all right. it's always the appeal right. um, that that it's the the right. It's the the you first, the me first, and then how 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 do I get whatever? Um, a, 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 like e- if everyone else in a group is getting something, how do I know that I'm that I'm getting it or that mine has some sort of uh, value that is like particular to me or one way or the other? Like I, I think that Hegel is I, he'd be pro- probably pretty scandalized by the appalled, the, just right? The, right? Yeah, the widespread acceptance of that. Like you know, no one's no like if you like if you had to make all of this a new idea. Right. Like like the uh, like just imagine it's it because it, you can't do this. But in a thought experiment, uh, he would probably like what wouldn't wouldn't he have this that that like so you have to make the argument that someone's an individual first. And and, and it's the, the it's on that basis that right. you become political, whereas he's on the side where like, no, that like you you come into. It's not that's not part of this section, the political thing. I'm sort of putting it there, but I think right. it's implicit that like because we are social and collective first, that is how we are uh, political. Right. right. And in fact, it's interesting because so spirit basically starts with what he calls uh, with with. Well, I mean, it, it, there's a whole section before this, but then the main uh, big hit of spirit is what he calls Zitlikite. Which is the okay. it's translated as the ethical order, and that's that's a basically a term that Hegel invents, and he's tracking, you know, Greek. It's basically an analysis of Greek society, and and, and what's interesting is that there, when he sees spirit first emerging, he's seeing seeing it emerging without individuality at all. So mm-hmm. it's really, I mean, he really goes against this modern prejudice, right? That the individual is the starting point because he looks back at the emergence of a certain form of spirit and he sees the way in which it's not tied to necessarily individuals within, within the society. Instead, it's it's tied, tied to two different conceptions of how we should conceive of how we should think of the universal within society, right? Like, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he sees this as, he, and he reduces it to the opposition between man and woman or Antigone and her brother, Polynesis. And it, it's interesting that, and, and I think this is really crucial, that it's the, it's, the, it's the woman and her brother, not the woman and her spouse, right? Like, it's not mm-hmm. the husband and wife. And he, he even says that, it's this kind of fascinating thing that the relationship between the brother and the 
sister is the most special bond uh, within humanity. Hmm. And it's, I think he says that because his own relationship to his sister, Christiane, was, was very, was Antigone Polynesius close. And so maybe there's something going on there. But, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah. uh and oh, you know, mention, when we were coming, when we were, try, when we were trying to come up with, uh, Theory jokes, uh, like some time ago, which you do not need any help with. No one needs to give this guy more material. Um, I remember I I had one that was that did potential that w- was getting at that incest angle, but that was I don't I, I for the life of me I, I can't remember neither the setup nor the punchline. Well, I do remember Hillary that. has yeah. a pretty good one actually. She came oh, up yeah? so yeah. maybe she was talking to you and stole this, or I don't know. But tell me if this was <laughs> yours. So it's okay. here. Here it is. It's like. So you have to know also that Hegel impregnated his landlady in 1809, right? So, and mm-hmm. had a son named Ludwig with an illegitimate child with her. And uh, in 1809, no one was getting, no landladies were getting pregnant. That's the significant, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so he was, and then he didn't get, he married like three years later to somebody else. Anyway, so the, the joke is this, why did Hegel sleep with his landlady? Well, I don't know. Why? Don't know. Because, oh, no, no, I totally screwed it up. I totally <laughs> screwed it up. So it's, here's the joke. Why did Hegel okay. sleep with his sister? Because oh, it was the okay. maid's day off. So ah! so, the, so she was the landlady slash maid, so it was Ma- a... Okay. Anyway, so that joke was completely <laughs> ruined by me. But it's a pretty... I thought it wasn't a bad, a bad joke no. because it kind of touched on both of Hegel's sexual adventures. I mean, I don't think with his sister, but you know, at the time that was a big thing, right? Like Byron has this play called Manford where Manford, like the whole point is he, he has incest with his sister and like the romantic poets, they all thought the sister was the, like the, in some way, like the perfect love object anyway. So he's thinking of that when he's talking about Antigone and Polynesis. And, but his point is really that, and this is a, I think this is a standard sexist trope, right? That the woman is the law of the, represents the law of the family and the mm-hmm. man, the law of the community. And these two yeah. things both want to universalize themselves and mm-hmm. neither can, because obviously, because they're in conflict with the other. So that's the contradiction that un, ends up undermining the ethical order or the, or, or Zitlikite that defines in this case, Greek society. This is interesting. Like outside of the, outside of the, the, um, the, the potential for incest to be the libidinal reason why he makes this point. It, it is interesting within the family structure. And I mean, and this seems very intentional, important for Hegel is that he's not looking at hierarchy as right. The, right? Like right. not like, you know, parent and child. Right. Like, of course he would look outside of that. He would want to look at something that is more, uh, I guess a lateral, I suppose. Right. I mean, um, the only thing is that he does give the woman the family, which is mm-hmm. secondary, he thinks, to the community, right? So so okay. there is a kind of, uh, like a sexism in the distribution of roles, I think. Okay. Yeah. It's that, that's But you're right. It's not hierarchical. Yeah. That is true. That's a, that is a good point. Hmm. It's interesting. I just and and I keep coming back to the, one of the things that we've said before is that like if you read Hegel in the way that we do, it's 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 hard to uh, 
hard to miss the parts where you're like, he's inventing psychoanalysis right now. Right. And right. Like there's a lot, there's a line I, I, uh, it's it just in the first section. I don't know if I have it right in front of me, but he, uh, what is this? Uh, the truth of observation is rather that it leaves behind it, this immediate instinct, which merely finds reason, this unconscious existence of reason, uh, obviously use of the word unconscious, what I'm, uh, uh, going to hit on, which is that, his idea of uh, of subjectivity, like you have to, you have to encounter the deadlock of the self, and that, and just for him to even have this idea that this happens in a way like unconsciously, like to even think to use that as the like, like to just logically move there, I think is like quite uh, is quite something. And then here, uh, one of the things that we've talked about before with Lacan is uh, the seventh seminar where he gets into the idea of the ethics of uh, psychoanalysis and it's uh, and his uh, one of his keystone examples of this is of course is Antigone and, and is it one of his examples or is it the example like yeah the, the example yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and it's and this is like Hegel in the ethical world coming from and he, he's using the, this example to be the the whole thing it's just it's it's just it's funny that like we were talking about this before it's funny that it's so big for Hegel and it's so big for Lacan and Lacan only references Hegel like derisively negatively. In that. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, in that account, which uh, seems to kind of, which seems to miss. It does. I, I think, think it misses because I don't think, I think he thinks that Hegel's point is Antigone is just about this conflict between two separate positions. And he doesn't see the way in which it's really about, it's not just about an opposition, but about a contradiction because both want to mm. claim both believe in their own universality, right? And can't see the, like, they can't just register it as an opposition. That's why mm-hmm. it can't be, there's not some way to have some peaceful resolution to mm-hmm. the conflict between Antigone and Creon, right? Like, that because the law of the, like, Antigone says, I'm governed by the law, the unwritten rule, law of the gods, not rule, unwritten law of the gods, Right. Mm-hmm. And Creon is just the public law. And so that conflict ends up ripping apart the ethical order or Zitlakite. And I think Lacan doesn't really see the way in first of all, he doesn't see the way in which Antigone believes she's following the law and not her desire, which seems to right. me pretty essential. <laughs> I don't know, point. Uh, yeah, and well, also especially that, if you like, if that's if that if your your notion is uh, like not giving ground relative to desire, right. thinking that you're following the law, while do, like that would at well, least, especially because have, earlier in the seminar he said like the he's opposed law and desire. So, so what 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 is it? I mean, I I just anyway, <laughs> I think that's so. Now we're going to get like a hundred Lacanian. Uh, analysts saying how wrong I am on the reading of uh, <laughs> seven or seven, <laughs> but that's well. Fine. You know what? We we, tuck, we tucked it in in the middle of the Hegel episode. That's so right. So that hopefully notice. they'll skip over yeah. this thing. Thank God. <laughs> um, but anyway, but I think that 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 um, what he doesn't get is the way in which that 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 it, that is the structure is really about con- the contradiction, and then for Hegel that contradiction generates or is 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 productive of this thing he calls legal status, which he identifies with with Rome, in which it's a way to to escape that the contradiction of, of ethical order or Greek or Greek society by seeing 
every by by establishing personhood mm-hmm. as the universal, right? Like personhood ends up avoiding that contradiction between family and state or or the 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 unwritten rule of the law of the gods and the and the written law of the state because personhood brings those in a certain sense holds those two together and thus avoids that contradiction. But then Hegel's point is that actually this is a completely empty kind of subjectivity. It's not even, it's barely subjectivity that all the subject, like, like to be a person is to be. And so, so in a way you get this kind of self that wasn't there before, but it's all subjected to the figure of the empire or the emperor like the, And that's why it's a, it's a, that the legal status depends upon a fundamental subjection that he thinks is ultimately, you know, doesn't allow for the singularity of the subject to emerge. Like it, like you're, mm-hmm. you become a person, but only insofar as you give up yourself to this lord or emperor, who who has all the authority. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I I think so. I think that's interesting. Well, and and, and another. Okay, so that also reads back of why it has to be Antigone and Polynices, right? Like it can't be like husband uh, and wife, e- right? Exactly, right. or 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 you know, parent and child, right. Uh, right? It ha- it has to, and and I think that also gets him to like it's a it's a tie, like 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 siblings. <laughs> it's a tie, right? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> right. If one and, side and I, won, then then that would be then spirit would be resolved, right? Like, then mm-hmm. then the problem of spirit would be, then we'd say, like, oh, well, ethical society actually ends up with, like, whatever, Antigone triumphs, and then this unwritten law of the gods can then govern spirit, and then everything will work out. But it's precisely because it doesn't, there's no resolution mm-hmm. that it doesn't work out, right? Like, that, that is what pushes it into some other attempted resolution which also fails can i tell you what you did that is very performative of what we're talking about yeah go i actually meant tie like social tie oh but but i and i think this is like this is uh because i'm thinking football so i i I no you are no no but it's a (laughs) yes but also this is like something you and i talk i don't know if we've said this on the show before but like the like if, if you could perfectly understand another person, there's just actually there'd be no reason to talk about it. That's right. Ever. That's right. That's right. That's it's, right. It's like, at best you're getting eighty percent. You're getting a square peg in a round hole. Like that's the, right. at best, right. and that's what makes it happen anyway. So I really but, like that that just happened. But 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 I also want to say that that just shows yeah. my wish fulfillment. That if it could just be a tie, that'd be okay. <laughs> I have no hope for a win. Just a tie would be good. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I am, I, I, as ever, more confident uh, yes. uh, than you That's in right. uh, in Joe Cool. Uh, but the w- angle. So, it, I mean, you you kind of covered it, even even in the the, the misunderstanding. The yeah. 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 Which is just that, like, I, like the it's not, and and I think that that that's important. We're we're not talking about, and and I think sometimes this this happens um, in the way Hegel gets read by. Uh, by others. Um, I, I don't know that like he, I feel like I've seen this, that there's this, um, or I'll, I'll put it this way. There's, um, he here is pushing against, um, hierarchy as, as, as having any kind of, 
like answer or authority for spirit. Like that, it can't work that way right. because that that's just too structurally determinative. And then it's not just the other side. I think sometimes you'll see like, okay, right. Like politically speaking, hierarchy has to be bad. We need something that is, uh, is flat. Okay. Like we want even like a, a flat ontology. We want like some, uh, like the, you know, the, um, the anarchist answer is always right. Like a flat structure. Nobody is like anybody's boss, like in, in, you know, within a business, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it might seem as though Hegel is doing that, right? Like the sibling thing, there's a flatness to that tie. Uh, but, but between the two, like maybe someone's older than another, but it, but it's not the, certainly not the same as parent to child, right. certainly not the same to like, like emperor to subject or right. like that. But I think what's it, like important and and this is where we get to the, like the dialectical versus the, the binary is that their spirit does have to rise. Doesn't it? Spirit is not flat. Right. Like there, there is, I don't, and, and the book itself, like this, this like movement through spirit is, it's, it's, uh, I want to say it's top down, but I mean, you could say that, right. It's like you, you, but you made this nice point that like we begin with the most immediate and we end with the most truthful, but like really the book should move the other way around because it's like social first and individual second. So this whole thing, what have I been leading up to is that in like Hegel would more just to put it in a sentence so that I can get kind of your reaction to this point is that like to see that, e- that the, the hierarchy within the flatness and sort of like the flatness within hierarchy would be more his point, like politically, personally, uh, like at, as a, as a social Yes. Um, yes. And, and, and I think that's the, I don't know, that's an important thing to, to hold on to. It's here, absolutely is that important. like yeah. spirit doesn't have this rise without that hierarchical structure uh, attendant, you know, like, like it, it's in uh, like operating in, in the background. Like what, like, what is it that, uh, that makes that sort of like sibling thing like so important as well is because it has that, uh, that distinction from the parental and child relationship, right, which right. is not not to destroy it, but uses it to become something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, totally. You're, I think yeah. that's totally right. And I also think like he always that's always true for him, right? Like the the hierarchical is always in the background and always informing the push forward. And and so he's exploring some kind of relation between the horizontal and the vertical. You know, mm-hmm. you know, like he, mm. it's never just, mm-hmm. it's never just one or the other, right? Like the, in some, in a certain way, like if there is a horizontal relation, it's, it's enabled by the underlying vertical one, right? Like that's why he's not yeah. Deleuze, I think, or, or something, yeah. right? I think that's really, really important. Which, is, well, which, yeah. which really, like, please, please follow up on this. Like, isn't it that like, because he would, because I, I think I think Deleuze and, and and others are are like, oh, that's the stain. We have to get rid of it. And right, I mean, they Hegel, wouldn't put it that way, but that's exactly yeah. right. Like, I think Hegel's point is, without that stain, like you could say that this entire section is how do how does spirit, which is inherently mm-hmm. universal, reconcile itself to the stain of individuality 
that always is attached to it. Right, like that's yeah, and who basically would even say that? that individuality is a stain. Sorry to keep interrupting, but yeah, like, who would say that? Everyone would want to like redeem the individual as like emerging out of this like flat sameness. Right, right. right. Like, but he yeah. would say no, it's the stain. And you know, we'll get to the the reign of terror, which is the the attempt <laughs> to just wipe it out altogether. Yeah, but what's yeah. we're so right now we've kind of come up to modernity and what he calls self alienated spirit or culture, and and and. In this world of what he calls self-alienated spirit, what's fascinating is that he sees— so the problem with, basically, with Greece and Rome, with the ethical order and the legal status, the legal person, is that there's not enough alienation there. And I think this is Mm -hmm. something that really— you know, it separates Hegel from Marx in a big, important way, that, that for him, alienation is not something to lament. It's actually— we were just talking about the birth of the individual out of the collective. Like, that is the vehicle for it. Like, if there wasn't any alienation, there would be no singularity of the individual within the collective. So it's not like first there's this individuality and then there— No, it's the opposite. And so there has to be a, a, a moment of alienation where that singularity can emerge, which isn't possible— Hegel doesn't think in a pre-modern world. So that's a very, mm. he's a very pro-modern thinker in that way, right? Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't nostalgically think like, oh, wow, Greek society, everything, like Foucault, for instance, mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, yeah. like Greek society, the late Foucault, oh, there was, there they had subjectivity without the imposition of the repressive law. That's better, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't think that. He thinks like the alienation of, modernity is actually something to celebrate rather than to lament. So I think that's really important, and that's why this whole moment of, of that he just talks about with the culture of alienation is really, really important. And, and he's basically here describing how we become individual and how, as individuals, we're still serving spirit. And it's funny, because in this section, there's a unspoken but seem, seems to me clear allusion to Adam Smith and the notion of wealth of agent wealth of nations that there's this invisible hand of the market that governs everything. So like the butcher mm-hmm. acts self-interestedly and so does the baker and yet they contribute mm-hmm. to the whole. And, and he doesn't think that's the last word, but he does think that there's something nicely universalist in that, you know, that, that we're in the attempt to serve our own particularity. We actually unknowingly benefit the universal, which is not how Smith would put it, of course, but no, which is a crucial, right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say like, well, is that, is that, um, (laughs) is it because the universe, okay, how about this? I I, want to, I want to ask this question. Is it that the universal is too easy to repress or is it that like, or is it that Smith does that? Like, in other words, like does, Maybe that ends up being the same thing, but like, does Smith do something like in not seeing that angle that Hegel sees? Is he performing like we 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 see this now, uh, right? Like, well, why is there this push against uh, mask or vaccine mandates? It's like, well, there's no one size fits all solution. That's in a very plain right. sense how right. you see today a right. very anti universalist right. thinking. Okay, is so. 
I'm, I guess what I'm asking is that like, it's do, the fault of capital, not of Smith that I think that's okay, what you want right. me to say. Yeah? yeah. That is what, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's what I would say. So, I mean, Smith is yeah. just a good ideologist of capital. Like he, he, mm-hmm. he knows what he's talking about, but he's basically just articulating the logic of capital. It's not like he's, although I think what Hegel would say is, I mean, my, this is a position I have developed in certain places that, that I think Hegel's point is if we interpret capitalism correct, and this, you'll see how anti-Marxist this idea is, that if we <laughs> interpret capitalism correctly, it will no longer be able to be capitalism. Right. Like, I mean, that's a clear, like Marx thinks that Mm -hmm. it's crazy. Like, you know, philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world, right? Like Hegel would (laughs) say, no, actually they haven't interpreted it well enough to change it. But if you interpret, Mm -hmm. like he has this great line, it's in a letter where he says, you know, once you theoretically change the world, the world in practice can't hold out for very long. So it's a total Mm -hmm. contrast Mm -hmm. to that whole Alla Minerva stuff and the philosophy of right. So really interesting. Yeah, it's that, that I find it fascinating. It's like wow. 1808, so it's not even that early of a of a letter. So it's uh, you know it's a, it's a really interesting. I want to I want to pick on uh, on something and, and give kind of an example. Like I I do think increasingly the idea of being uh, for modernity is uh, a not a like a popular position. I know because I, I just. Know. I saw this again. We did, you know, several episodes ago. We we did our um, our episode on retroactivity on uh, Noctroglycite uh, um, and uh, trauma, and I saw again in another, and I think this was in the New Yorker, another um, article that was referencing the one that uh, we talked about a little bit, the popular article in um, what was it Harper's? I think that had, had come out like that week that we were planning to do the episode talking about uh, trauma as this modern uh, invention and trauma is, is everywhere. And, but it was about uh, like, I think television narrative is, is uh, specifically, Um, but it included this line about like the, the value I, Oh, I I wish, I wish I had it in front of me so I could get it right. Cause, uh, but it was something like people who talk about trauma, like, like, like me and you uh, get a, a certain kind of tenure and I, and I thought that was really interesting because it was written in a kind of a weaselly way. Yeah. Like this is going to get, get me tenure at my job, which uh, is that, it's, it's not exactly coming yet. I got to do a lot, <laughs> a lot more. I mean, please give it to me. I mean, like, maybe yeah. this guy can, can help. Yeah. But, um, but also I, it, it was open enough to be like, oh, well being on the side of, of trauma, like it, it allows you to have a tenure in uh, like the social, like it's very right. it's popular to say right. this and right. it's not, it's not popular to be on the other side, even though this guy is referencing an article that came out, a, you know, a week previously in another mainstream, like, uh, you know, elite journal, uh, which is perhaps a contradiction in terms, but I, I don't know where the, where the pro trauma articles are coming in Harper's or the New York, New Yorker. I'm not seeing them. Anyway, my point in this is that to be um, on the side of uh, of of modernity, it's in in the way that Hegel does it, and also, and I'm going to say to be on the side of trauma. What I'm observing in articles such as this, this was in the New Yorker recently. I wish I remember the name of it. We did talk about the other one by name, um, and I'm forgetting the person who wrote the thing in the Harper's, but that's in the uh, the retroactivity episode. Is I th- I think there is a push that people. Uh, intellectuals, public intellectuals, public conversation, I think even political, is that people want the 
they want the individual without the trauma of the social. Yeah. And think that these things are separate and do not inform one another and are not integral. No, I think that's absolutely and, right. And, yeah. That, that, yeah. I mean, it's a way of rejecting the necessity of alienation for individuality. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I think that's right. right. Like, like, like individuality can happen in any other way. Like right. It, it can be. Right. A, it can't. No, like, I mean, that's Hegel's point, right? Like that, that the, and, 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 and modernity becomes for Hegel, the struggle, how can we, how can we, we've, the alienation has formed the individual. How mm-hmm. can we struggle with that? How can we, modernity yeah. is this attempt to get rid of it, right? Like, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he, that's why he goes through all these things like noble consciousness is the attempt to mm-hmm. sacrifice oneself. He calls it even the, the heroism of service, right? For, to sacrifice mm-hmm. your individuality for the, for the universal. But then, of course, the, he, because he sees the contradiction in that, that if you're, that in the act of sacrificing yourself for the universal, you're elevating your own individuality as, <laughs> important, right? So right. even right, if you're, right, right, you know, right. no matter where you are, right? Like even if you're in North Korea sacrificing yourself namelessly for the universal of the state, you're still elevating yourself as an individual in that act of sacrifice, right? So mm-hmm. there's some there's some that there's a contradiction in that. And so that's why he 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 ends up thinking that it's the, that's why it's, he's against purity, right? That's because why he's against the... purity exactly. So that's why yeah. he has some sympathy for like corruption and this attempt to like, you know, he calls it like the position of flattery who's trying, you know, like just trying to get, a- get ahead because you end up actually doing more for the state in that way than trying to sustain your purity and your, your noble consciousness. Right. Like, so, so it's interesting yeah. that what yeah. appears initially good ends up being bad and what appears bad ends up being good. And so it's this mm-hmm. it's this reversal that happens within culture and its alienation in this section, which I think is pretty it's pretty fascinating that that in a way culture, the truth of culture is contradiction. And that's what he likes about it. It's not what he dislikes about it. It's uh it's funny to to make a to make a sports reference. Uh this is more in uh in uh, improper football. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in soccer, uh, as we would say here, uh, the I'll often hear the um, the English uh, um, announcers say that a player. Have you ever heard this before? A certain player flatters to deceive. Have you heard? No, that? I never heard that. No. It's cool. Oh, it's fantastic. It's a it's a. I mean, it's a great it's a great English phrase or the British phrase, especially applied to footballers. It'd be like someone who like. Uh, like they, they either like they try very hard or they're like they're they're very very flair player like they're very like very tricksy but there's actually not a lot of like end product you take right, a look at the right, stat right. sheet it's like is there are there a lot of key passes here are there a lot of assists a lot of goals but here's the thing is that it, like um I mean I don't have a specific example but sometimes it does happen like it does come off all that effort like all that flat flattery to just like it does end up leading to right right, or a goal and i think it ends up being like it ends up uh, being performative that thing like uh that 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 hegel's getting to that like you you know to to think about these things as absolute oppositions is is not correct but to see how the oppositions themselves are bound together and like and to you know determine each other that that a relation that is contradictory right right i mean it's interesting that that precise relation then so this is the moment where 
And and you drew the attention to this at the beginning of the episode that there's this important distinction, or you mentioned that we have to get to faith through reason, right? And I think that's uh, such yeah. an important yeah. idea yes, that, there it that is, yeah. faith is not immediate for Hegel, right? Because it has mm-hmm. all these layers of mediation that make it possible, including culture as the self-alienation of spirit, because that creates this other realm that we can have faith in, right? So that's mm-hmm. yeah. that's really important. But then the other thing is faith is not religion. So religion comes is a whole other yes. step further and and for Hegel much more concrete than just faith. And I think that opposition or that not it's not an opposition, but that distinction between faith and religion is to is really vital to understand because because faith doesn't yet recognize the beyond fully as a beyond, that it's still because it's it, it doesn't it doesn't accede to the beyond because faith is too busy struggling with the here and now, right? Like it, it's constantly mm-hmm. saying, oh, the here and now isn't good enough. It's not good enough for the level of what we have faith in. So, so it's, this, it's this slam on what is in the name of the divine, right? Whereas, yeah. and then, but then pure insight, what's interesting about this section of faith and pure insight is that pure insight, which becomes enlightenment, is in a certain way the same thing, right? Like it slams everything for not being fully reasonable. So so both are mm-hmm. slamming actuality for its, its failures. So I think it's what's fascinating is no one would claim that faith and enlightenment are the same thing except Hegel, no. right? Like except that's, Hegel. that's yeah. Hegel's idea, basically, that, because they're both contemptuous of the actual, and that's what he sees as, as, as linking them together. I think we would add from the psychoanalytic analytic perspective is, is desire would be the thing we would add here, which right, is what makes right. it so interesting that he talks about Antigone and then Lacan talks about Antigone and desire and, you know, right. in in the seventh seminar, um, the, it, and it's fascinating. And just to, to make sure, just in case people don't have like the book in front of them, what Todd's talking about, like the, the distinction between faith and religion is the one it's like, it's an implicit argument that uh, is by, that that is being made by Hegel in the way that he positions. The just the structure section. of the book, right? Like it's just yeah, the structure yeah. of the book, right? Like, like like faith is within spirit, and then religion's mm-hmm. its whole other section coming totally afterward, right? Right, and it's and it seems to imply that, um, and I think this is this is sort of our take is that there's no stain in faith. Right, that faith right. operates the, is actually the only way faith can operate. Right, so is, it's exactly is, the opposite of what you would think, because you'd think like, yeah. oh, religion is further along, it's purer, mm-hmm. and religion, faith is still too much involved with the actual person, religion is this beyond. No, it's the opposite. Like, religion avows the stain in a way that faith refuses to. Yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's very interesting. Like, I mean, you see this, this is something that in, um, forgive me if I'm missing one of uh, Zizek's great books on uh, Christianity, but there's the, uh, the fragile absolute and it's the puppet and the dwarf. Yeah. Is there a third I'm missing? On belief, I think is on, on okay. religion. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did I do that? <laughs> I missed that one. <laughs> I remember the other two. Yeah. Um, but it's very much, uh, it's very, very like you can see where he, 
he he gets his approach here and it's still very relevant like it's not he's not ripping Hegel off he's he's showing how like you know this is this is very old but it's very relevant because it, it shows us something that people continue to ignore right in this like politics of assumption uh that I'm sort of referencing earlier but like what he talks about us uh, I think most I'm most familiar with it in uh, Puppet and the Dwarf is that you know God sends his only son to earth and he gets murdered and this is and and this is a it's he means it as and I, I think to see stain here is not um like sin like this is like a sin that we have to continue to pay for if you are if you do follow christianity right and are religious but like this is just the only way that this religion could become actual is to have this violence on it. Right. Like, that's the only way. Right. It's Stain not, is it, like a yeah. dirty hands, right? Like, yeah. And yeah. the only hands that can be active are the, it's only by being dirty that the hands can be active, right? So, so Todd, here, here we are, backed into the following insight. Who is the most, most ethical subject in the Bible? It's Judas Iscariot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Because, and, and, you know, it's funny because Christ kind of even gives that away. It's I this, agree. Yes. Yeah, there's this... Go, yeah, keep going with this, yeah. This is great line in Matthew. I should know its chapter and verse, but I don't. But it's, but it's, he says, like, woe to who this, woe to whom this sin came in, this, this deed came into the world, but it is nonetheless necessary. Right? Like, mm, so, yeah. so he's like, Very nice. yeah, okay, it sucks for him, but it's, somebody <laughs> had to do it, right? Like, yeah. And so yeah, yeah. it's a fact, I always, that always so much bothered me until I came to around to the point that you just said, like mm-hmm. Judas performs this, you know, duty of, mm-hmm. of bringing Christ down, which then mm-hmm. allows God to be manifested on, on, on the cross, right? Like, like that, yeah. that, so the death of Christ is absolutely essential for this, Finitization mm-hmm. of God, or whatever we want to call, it, or stain of God, right? Like so mm-hmm. that God can die. That really is essential, and it's Judas that makes that possible. So, of course, he 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 gets put in Dante's uh, ninth circle of hell. <laughs> I mean, Dante's judgments <laughs> right. are a little dubious. I think. I mean, also Brutus Ooh. and Cassius are there. I don't. I'm, I mean, what did they do other than try to save the Republic? But. Um, <laughs> uh, can you, we go on? To, I want to. I want to just like very quickly. I yeah. want to seize on the word judgment because I think that's that's uh, a thing that's really important. Yeah, it's, it is. it's also the same, and I think this is important for Hegel because this does come up as a misunderstanding. Just like like Slavoj is an atheist, so like what and 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 I think it's the 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 it's the the logic of of Christianity. Like it's, it's, this isn't. I think like I know that this is that this is happens that some people think that like this is where. Hegel becomes a big supporter of the church, and that's not an accurate reading at all. It'd be the same as thinking that's that Slav that, that Zizek is also like right. supportive right. of the church. Right. It's the whole point is the actually the whole church that the point would be this is that like, well, the church does faith that ignores the stain. And if it had an understanding of this, it would operate in a completely different completely way. Completely different. Right. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, it's interesting because there's a, isn't there a way in which, I mean, he calls faith, he ends up calling it superstition. So that's mm. a bit of a slam. But uh, 
but Hegel none the, does, just to be clear. Hegel does, yeah, yeah, not Slavic. Yeah. Uh, but it is true that enlightenment kind of comes off worse than faith, right? Like, yeah, even though yeah. Hegel is ultimately an enlightenment thinker, he has this great analysis of where enlightenment critiques faith for, like, stupidly worshiping material things. And he's like, uh, Hegel's like, well, wait a minute. Um, isn't the whole point of enlightenment how uh, there can be metaphors, right? Like that <laughs> that the material actually can indicate yeah. something else. And so isn't faith itself understanding that the object is just not really this stupid, senseless thing, but mm-hmm. the the idea that it symbolizes or the absolute that it symbolizes and the, and the absolute can be manifested in just some material object like spirit is a bone whatever right like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that and the ability of faith to do that is something that enlightenment should actually be praising but it's critiquing faith for its stupidity like what well, why are you wearing that cross around your neck are you stupid do you think that that that's really the divine or like why are you mm-hmm. dipping your hand in that water to cross yourself don't you realize it's just it's not holy it's just water right like mm-hmm, hegel mm-hmm, would mm-hmm. say well that's that's a funny critique because, of course, the person of faith knows that, but that they, they're, that, that while doing it, they're showing this enlightenment transcendence mm. of the bare material. And that, but then he then says, but wait a minute, then faith ends up falling victim to enlightenment by trying to defend itself on enlightenment terms. And I think that, yeah. to me, that's, that's one of the point. great little dialectical shifts of the whole book actually you know like like the way like what would it be it'd be like this shroud of turin or something sure. you know like any yeah. like oh look we found this ev- there's this evidence like what's the d de- yeah. you know the carbon dating mm-hmm. on the shroud whatever it is right like mm-hmm. um that that enlightenment is like an infection right that it that it ends up once you get into once it gets into faith it it ends mm-hmm. up subverting it by ca- by causing faith to start to operate on its on its terrain. Well, because it, it, like, and this this would be the the point is that the, um, where both it's it's kind of interesting uh, that faith ignores and doesn't see that enlightenment is staining the purity of faith. So prevent so that point of view preventing it from moving forward right. as like you, you're not seeing the stain and then the like pure intellectual insight is is it has to have as an absolute allergy anything that might seem faith based or like right. like it, right. it, even the, the the littlest way and right. so the uh, maintaining like for one and and I I I would put the the kind of like the cynical relationship in there that I do think is here too, is that like the, the, the avoidance, the absolute avoidance of like a pure enlightenment attitude toward faith and, uh, and then faith trying to move toward enlightenment, uh, uh, terrain to like prove faith. Like these, like these things need each other and they lock each other in a circle that there, from which there is no breaking out of. Right. And, and, and that is that itself, that movement is opposed to what he's trying to articulate with spirit. And certainly there, like what's not happening in that relationship. Certainly there's no alienation. Right. Certainly there's, you know, there's no, uh, there's no uh, confrontation with contradiction. Like those things aren't there. So because they're not there, they need to be, uh, 
we, they, they need to be left and, and they have, but, they, but right. I, I think it's, it's, it's crucial that he, he shows their like kind of like their interlocking and interdependent uh, uh, nature, but also that there is uh there's no there uh, right, beyond right. that. Right. And, and I think that, that, that is really a crucial thing for the move, the next movement, right? Like that, that the lack of a beyond which is what enlightenment basically shows, right? That faith, there's no, you think there's a beyond, there's no beyond. But living mm-hmm. without a beyond ends up reducing everything to its utility. And that's why, yeah. that's why that section after the struggle between enlightenment and superstition is the truth of enlightenment, which is basically the rule of utility, right? Like everything mm-hmm. is reduced to its usefulness and the useful object becomes everything. But the problem is, that once everything is reduced to use, use, then nothing is important on its own, right? And that's yeah. that for him is a real. That ends up being, I think, one of the crucial problem areas of this entire section. You know, don't you think? Like that, oh, that, yeah. that that because it's interesting, and, and I think that the the you might say. I mean, it's a little uh, anachronistic that in a way he's maybe talking about utilitarianism, even though it doesn't exist yet um, yeah. as a philosophy, but then, and it couldn't lead into this because it didn't exist yet as a philosophy, but there's a way in which that reduction of everything to utility really leads into the section that he calls absolute freedom and terror, which is his account of the French revolution and, and the reign of terror, right? Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And I told you this before, I'm not going to explain it because it takes too long, but like it, this, um, my, I was, I was playing a video game while we were also prepping for this. The video game is called Tales of Berseria, which is excellent. It's like Hegel's critique of critique of pure reason was made into a video game. And there's a part where the whole world is, is, is taken over by pure reason. And I just, I thought this was so striking. There's, there, there are these characters, these just like uh, NPCs, they're called non-playable characters that you encounter earlier in the game, hours earlier. And this guy is reflecting about how he's terror. He's actually a bad person and doesn't do anything to benefit society because of his sin and how awful he is. And he moves to just go kill himself. And it's like, like, the, it's like that. That's what, that's exactly. what terror is for Hegel, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like yes, anybody, yes. like it's the, it's this, why he calls it absolute freedom. You could also call it the abstract universal, right? Like, mm-hmm, like everything, mm-hmm. no. And this is where this point about the stain really comes to a head. I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the point is it's a, an attempt by universality to get rid of any kind. Well, it's first of all, it's redu- reducing everything to its purest use, right? And that, uh, the manifestation yes. of that, but also it's an attempt to get rid of any stain. So any, the slightest impurity, yes. like if you're not perfectly devoted to the universal head cut off, like, and remember he says it's the worst, it's the coldest death when, you know, the cutting off of a head, like with no more thought than chopping off a head of cabbage like I, I I I love that image, and I think it's a. You know, it's interesting because I think he has to be referring to Robespierre and the notion of him as the incorruptible, and yes, you know, like right. there there the point is there's no incorruptible, right? Like everyone has mm-hmm. a little stain of corruption, because and his point is not just that everyone sins, but that even if you're even if you're just enacting the universal, you're always going to do it. It's kind of what we, whenever we talked about that point of enunciation, you're always mm-hmm. doing it 
from the singular point of subjectivity. And so that's already not universal enough. Right. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. like, you know, like your, it's like, you know, okay, you can, I think, you know, you can think about this with the death penalty even, right? Like we're going to put to death everyone who does yeah. any killing. Well, okay. Right, right. Then right, you have right. to put to death the executioner and then the executioner of the executioner. And, the, you know, like that's right, kind of right. what he's getting at, I think, that yeah. there, there's this, this endless, senseless death involved because there's no way to acknowledge the necessity of the stain of individuality within universality. So this is also, so he, he, where he comes to, um, in the section, uh, is that at, like, and I don't want to move uh, to maybe, maybe you'll think this moves too fast past the, uh, like the, the reign of terror, but he thinks that Kantian morality. Yeah, no, I want to move fast. Yeah. I think that's you, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting because isn't Kantian morality the attempt to gain, to bring the individual up to the purity that the reign of terror wanted it to have, right? Yeah. Like through morality, I think that that's, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like, okay, we couldn't overcome the stain this way. Here's a way we can overcome it through morality. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Like it, um, it's, you do not have, uh, again, it, 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 it flees to a terrain free uh, of of an encounter with contradiction which i'm trying to to, to hit the the that as the as the thread because it, it does move yeah through everything like because and, and it's just as you just said that like in the same thing as the executioner like executing those who kill like where is this position of moral purity and judgment that is free from any kind of dirt right and it's just it's not it's not possible like, like it's, it, it, uh, like where, like what, hmm, how, like how, how, how do you play it out, um, sort of like logically with something that maybe like, like, uh, maybe a Kantian style metaphor, but well, like the, who, like who, where, from what, if, if, I mean, maybe I'll just put it this way, like, um, out of what society is someone emerging with a pure morality from which to judge others from failing? to be pure. If you see what I mean, I do. Right. Yeah. Like, like if, 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 if if, okay, if there needs to be someone to exist to judge people for being impure, but they came out of this impure. Exactly. uh, Exactly. Like how, how, how did that, how did that happen? It means, it means something's being ignored. It means you're, you're ignoring some kind of stain. Right. Like just, yeah, as a matter of course, like, right. And, and, and so the whole point is right. That, that, that in order to stay free from a stain, Morality has to never realize itself in an act, right? Like that's yeah. the that's the thing. Like that 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 for Hegel, actually acting is always mm-hmm. going to involve. We'll come back to the same thing we've always been saying: like getting your hands dirty in a way yeah. that the moral law would prohibit, right? Like like mm-hmm. like let's mm-hmm. take Kant's favorite or his this example that he gives in a reply to Benjamin Constant. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, talking about like, cause, cause Benjamin Constant is, is saying to him, uh, actually it's not clear that he targets Kant, but Kant imagines that he was attacking him. So, <laughs> but, but his, his, his thing is like, if someone, if a murderer comes to the, and people have translated this to Nazism, you'll see why. Um, yeah. uh, so Constant's point is 
if a murderer comes to the door and says, are you hiding this person I want to kill in your house? Mm-hmm. For Kant, you can't lie and say, oh, yeah, yeah I'm hiding them. Um, but but for Constant, you, you, like the moral thing to do is to lie, right? And so mm-hmm. I think it's a perfect example of, like for Hegel, he would say, well, okay, so Kant's sustaining this pure morality so as not to have to confront this moral dilemma, right? And mm-hmm. this, and, or to have to act in, you know, to, to, to like decide, like, I'm going to protect this, the innocent party, or I'm going to confront mm-hmm. the, attack the murderer or anything like, and like the more, in order to stay pure, you're just like, yeah, I'm hiding the person in there and then get out <laughs> of the you, way. You, yeah. Right. It's a and, refusal of, of the compl- the complexity. Right? That's exactly that, right. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's interesting because Fichte says you can't lie, but on the, by the same token, you can't leave the person defenseless. So you have to try mm-hmm. to like kill or, or, or destroy the murderer uh, at your risk to your own life. So Fichte's point is better to die uh, defending the person than to violate the moral law. So he, cause he thinks that, that our life is worth nothing if we're not moral beings. So it's an interesting kind of, it's like he, he, he takes a little, puts Kant to the second power on that, on that question. But, um, interesting. But, yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of fascinating. It's kind of great uh, actually. I know. I mean, you know, yeah. it's not realizable obviously. Um, no. And it makes the, it, it, it does the, well, what we were talking about earlier, like, like does that not, um, like that, like somehow makes your, like your sacrifice, like that's the, the most important thing. Right, the, right. I mean, situation. it's like Ficht is in love with, with uh, sacrificing his life or something, right? Like that's, it's mm. kind of crazy. Um, because for one thing, Fick, like if, if you John have, Wick movie, is that what he's doing? I know, I know maybe. But like for one thing, if you have an ethical duty to protect the, the oppressed, then by dying right away, you're not going to be able to do that yeah. more. For, so there's a whole kind of bunch of problems with that, that Hegel would be very yeah. attentive to. So I think, so that's interesting. And so, so Hegel thinks that the, the moral law is really what he calls dissemblance or duplicity, right? Like it mm. doesn't really want to accomplish what it says it wants to accomplish in the world. So it's a, it's a really kind of, I think, pretty nuanced. I mean, it's it, in a way you could reduce Hegel's critique to this, that the moral law is just the ought and every mm. ought is disingenuous, right? Because yeah. if you really, if you really think you ought to do something, you should actually do it and not just say <laughs> you ought to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really, really nice. Uh, yeah. Um, th- so, so then the whole, and again, actually, maybe this goes back to that, like that kind of like cynical, uh, circle that, that I was talking about with, um, like the, like the, the, the faith, the faith person against the enlightenment person, the enlightenment yeah. person against the faith person where like the only, like the thing that actually substantializes in a very real way, like any kind of moral position is its uh, unattainability and it's right. impossibility. Right. And, right. and, and that as a, and it can only be seen as a goal as insofar as you ignore that it's just not possible right. to occupy that position. Right. So, and that's I, why, that's yeah. why, I mean, that's exactly Hegel's critique of Kant, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that for Hegel, what counts are moral deeds, not mm-hmm. 
moral ideals. So, yeah, yeah. so he, mm-hmm. you know, like, what are you doing? Like, okay, you know, you can have all these positions, but what are you doing, right? And that's the, like, I, I, I have a friend whose position about the climate is, it's just, it's too late, we've already screwed ourselves, and we mm-hmm. need to, like, constantly remind everyone how bad it is <laughs> and that it's all, it's too late. And I, I just, I said to this person, I'm like, well, uh, don't you see how that's exactly what, the conservative position wants everyone to say, right? Like, like, yeah, like, yeah. like your morality is not in this like noble position that you take up. It's in the real, yeah. it's in the actual things that you do to make a certain thing happen. And, 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 and to, and, and, and isn't it, isn't it, isn't one of the moral things to take something that appears to be impossible and to mm-hmm. transform it into something that's possible. Yeah, right. Exactly. Not to not as in, yeah, not not so that it has a uh, it is only like like uh, substantive because it's this impossible ideal, but to like to bring the impossible down to earth. Right. Like, yeah, bring God down to earth. Right. Like, you know, yeah, and get your hands dirty, get your hands dirty. Right. Right. (laughs) Don't like, oh, yes, we can't do anything. It's too late. Let's see how bad I can make everyone feel about that. Right? Like, okay. Yeah. That's nice, yeah. but they'll feel bad and the earth will still be being destroyed. Right? Like, mm-hmm. why not actually, like, like help to in, enact some kind of... This person's also rather old, so they're not even going to be around for the disaster. So I find that yeah. also further disingenuous, uh, furtherly disingenuous. But... um. Anyway, but I, I think that the, the you know that's that's the essence of Hegel's critique of Kant. Like he would be, mm-hmm. he's totally on the side of what can you get your hands dirty? What can you actually do? Right, like yeah. that's his mm-hmm. position. And it's interesting how he ends this section of Spirit. It's it's probably the most famous part of it, right? This discussion mm-hmm. of what he calls the beautiful soul, right? And that so so it ends up being that that. Consciousness comes to this recognition through the morality discussion or, you know, investigation that it has to, it has to become impure in order to act, right? And then, mm-hmm. and then it comes to what he calls like a judging. There becomes like there's this doing and act like I do my duty. I actually act, but then I also mm-hmm. am judging it, right? And so there's this. There's this conflict at the end of this spirit section between doing, actually doing some kind of action, and then the judging of it because no action is pure. It always involves some kind of impurity that one hasn't taken into account, right? And so mm-hmm. for Hegel, and then that, that's the, 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 like the beautiful soul is this position that says, okay, I'm... I, I don't want to have to act because any act would involve this impurity, right? And I'm going to try to, I'm going to see if I can find, like, I'm going to try to avoid that impurity. And so the beautiful soul just judges mm. the act and says, like, oh, wait a minute. When you were acting, you were really be, you were just doing, you know how people do this all the time? Like, I had a teacher in eighth grade. His name was Lon Stamper. Okay. He's dead now. Uh, I assume. And, and he, he like, he, he was a social studies teacher. No, it's funny. Uh, 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 He was a social studies teacher and he was a funny teacher. And 
I had a woman in front. She was a girl, I guess, because it's eighth grade. But she had a humongous haircut, and okay. and and I would sleep behind her because he could never see me past her haircut. <laughs> but I did. I was awake for him to say this. This was his. He said this every class when it was like his pearl of, pearl of insight. He said, okay. "You know, people think they're acting unselfishly, but every act is really selfish." That's what he'd say. He said, and mm-hmm. I and I like. I I remember thinking. Well, if every act is selfish, then what's the point of even making the distinction between there we go. selfishness and unselfishness? Of course, I didn't say that because I was, you know, cowardly and I wanted to just hide my head. You behind. were asleep. I was asleep, exactly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But this is kind of what judging consciousness comes to. This position of the beautiful soul comes to at the end of this section, right? That mm-hmm. that. Every this unpacking of every act of the selfishness behind every act, and I'm going to retain the purity by not acting. Right, yeah. right, and it's interesting. I think something like a phrase like the beautiful soul sounds like, oh, that sounds like the goal. Right. You want to try to you want right. to try to occupy the position, right. of the beautiful right. soul, but that's not that's not Hegel's point. You know, there's a reason why this isn't the last section in the book. Right. Uh, it's just the last section of uh, the spirit section, and uh, yeah, like so. Th- this 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 position of uh, <clears throat> sorry of like of 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 judgment of of judgment to the point of um, I guess I would say like you know the the uh, the, the 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 two great terms to, of of reading James Joyce's uh, um, Dubliners. What are they? You're looking for paralysis and stagnation yeah it's like this is that's that's the end that's actually what the beautiful soul gives you is is like a a paralysis of action and then through that a stagnant um perpetuity because of this like refusal to reconcile to the like to the contradiction to the the conflict here right it's like well to do this act at all means that i have to like you know lose the purity it it compromises my moral purity so i do nothing right right and And, and because i i'm never gonna act out of pure motives so i'm just not going to do anything at all right and so and i'm just going to stand back and judge and i don't yeah and i'm not going to recognize how standing back and judging actually creates the world that I'm despising. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's, isn't that, I mean, like, is that not a, um, is that not a treatment of, of Twitter in a very substantial oh, way? Oh, it's, a, I, I just think this last section is an amazing indictment of our contemporary situation. You know, like the, especially that long, you know, this great line where he says, no hero is a hero to his valet, not because yeah. the hero isn't yeah. a hero, but because the valet is a valet, right? Like that. Yeah, and I think yeah. like that isn't that, I mean, you could even say that our whole, like, let's bring everyone down today is precisely mm-hmm. that, you know, like, let's find like, oh, they seemed like they were good, but look at this thing that they did 20 years or whatever it is, right? Yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. that whole, yeah. that whole move is exactly what Hegel's criticizing here, I think. You know, like that, 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 that the, you know, I mean, with the work of art, it's even more interesting, right? Like that, like we can no longer celebrate this work of art because we found out something terrible about the artist that was, mm. that was, they're not even terrible, just negative about the artist that was, that was making it. 
Well, it's about trying to find that, like the, 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 that purity of, um, the position of like, really, it's actually like a, a position of consumption. Yes. Like I want, you know, I, I want to consume pos- the perfect commodity. <laughs> yeah. Which, um, is a, a, an amazing, uh, disavowal of the the system by which any commodity comes to exist. That is true. That is true. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. 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 It, it's it's now it's really interesting. And I mean like it, it this would be uh like um it's some version know, of like, isn't it some version of purity on essence or peace on earth or something <laughs> like that. It's so, that's really funny that you just did it that way. <laughs> uh, You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. I am, I, I know. Yeah. Especially given what we've said about the commodity. They're going <laughs> to... That's a good point. Well, no, and th- I mean, no, no, which is good. I'm glad you brought that up because, like, of course, <laughs> like the... Um, uh, what, what did we... What did we... Uh, we talked about Oreos, bags of chips... Coca-Cola, we're, we're, we're our, our hands are dirty. They are let's, dirty. Let's not, yeah. you, you know, th- yeah. th- this has not been, um, yeah. uh, this has not been a, an attempt to, to put us in this position, which, you know, of, of, no, uh, no, of especially with all the, especially with the corporate support that we're getting for our, our podcast. So we can't, <laughs> we certainly can't say um, anything. Todd's of course joking, but, um, <laughs> I did for the, fir- this listeners might find this interesting. I did for the first time. I, uh, we we got an or I got an email about asking if we wanted to be a part of a um, of a of a podcast network of, like to better monetize what we do, and it was um it was it was a form thing I'm sure like you know like right. I, I don't know how we, we we got to this onto this person's radar but it was really funny because their 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 beginning list of like you know yeah we also have like these pod right like trying to convince me that we would be a good fit on the network right. the first the first podcast was like crypto talk like for like cryptocurrency and i'm like i'm <laughs> yeah we're probably not a good fit really actually. i don't know about that yeah yeah I, li- I like when when the deception is you you drop it within eight words like it's just you can't even maintain it after that, that, right, that like right. the person like really no idea what they're corresponding to anyway nice to be thought of yes. right like yes a, yes yeah, that's yeah. sweet yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean I, I so it's interesting that he ends kind of with the beautiful soul, right? And then, and then, the what's fascinating is, and I think this is underrated today, frankly, that okay. that the final move of spirit is forgiveness, right? Like, like it's nice. It's grasping the necessity of our evil, and then that means you have to be willing to forgive because that necessary evil is in you just as much as it's in anyone else. And then that mm-hmm. means we're on the terrain of religion, right? Like that that religion yeah. is this recognition of our evil. And I think that that's um, you know, I think that it's a pretty it's a pretty fascinating way to stop. And it it does it's it, it nicely ties in to the film that in case people don't know it, that we were alluding to in our <laughs> in our little exchange a few minutes ago. Uh, what's the lesson, Ryan? Lesson is, watch Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. There you go. Over and out. Over and out.